This is the Millionaire Real Estate Podcast, where you'll learn the strategies and tactics you need to become a millionaire agent. Learn from top agents, brokers, team leaders, and experts in the industry who can help you on the path to success. And now, here's today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to this episode. We've got Matt Saunders with Simple Real Estate Solutions, and he is amazing. He has over 57 rental properties that are all paid off. He's bringing in over $50,000 in monetary money every single month. And so we are going to talk about how to grow and scale your business through rental properties. So welcome, Matt. Thank you, Chantel. Thank you. So I want you to talk about, I know before we were talking, before we started recording, we were talking about the Burr method, B-R-R-R-R strategy, which is called to buy, to rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat. And so for people who've never heard of the Burr strategy, what is it and how do you do it? Okay, well, go back. I'll start with why, okay? Um, depending on where you are in your personal income, which is a whole segment I could go on about improving your skills so you can earn more without increasing your lifestyle where you end up spending more. But let's just put that off to the side and let's pretend you've accumulated $30,000 or $40,000 or $50,000 from savings, okay? And then you've either hooked up with an agent or you've bought some books and figured out how to buy rental, buy real estate inexpensively. And generally that real estate is going to be in lousy condition, okay? But you also need a motivated seller. That's Another a topic on how to buy is we could talk an hour on that, but you you have to know how to buy. One of the things that was told to me when I first started buying rental property was that you make your money when you buy it, and I never understood that until I started buying it, and then the light went off. So go back to the Burr method: buy, renovate. Yeah. So let's, you're right. You're right. Let's, let's break it down each one and we'll talk about each one for a second. So now let's just talk about buying of what is your formula to buy the property. And I love that you make your money when you buy the property. Everyone needs to hear that again. Um, All right. So so like, here's the thing, it's going to take a lot of work to buy a property that is undervalued. Okay. Um, a lot of work. Um, if you're working with an agent, you're going to need to work with an agent that's really used to doing what's required to get a property under value. Um, that may be putting in a hundred offers on property that you haven't even seen that meet certain criteria. Like it's been on the market more than six months. It's in certain, there's a lot of work and that's why I said it's a whole segment by itself. I mean, we're at the point where we do a tremendous amount of monthly marketing, like 15000 a month to find our properties, but that's not realistic for somebody who's trying to start off. But there's a million books you can buy. At the end of the day, whether it's door knocking, whether it's working through agents, whether it's 
some direct marketing, whatever it is, there's a lot of books and courses out there. I wouldn't spend a lot on it because if you, if you bought a hundred bucks of books, you 90% of anything you could learn is right in there, no matter how much you spend with someone else's course. Um, so anyhow, you, you have to learn how to buy correctly. Okay. Um, in order to buy correctly, you have to understand real estate values too. Yeah. So a lot of flippers use the formula. They say the after repair value times 0.7 or times 70% minus repairs equals the maximum purchase price. So for example, if you thought after you fixed the house, it was going to be $100,000, you multiply that by 70%, that gives you 70,000. If you think that the, there's going to be $20,000 in repairs, then the maximum you should spend on flipping the property is $50,000. Is that right. the formula you use or is there another formula that you use? Okay. So that's a good formula. Okay. When it comes to rental property in this area, okay, that formula is is fantastic especially when you're talking about an after renovation value of a hundred grand or 80 grand or 120 grand but in the lower section okay um and the reason for that is that a hundred thousand dollar house here you can get a hundred eleven hundred eleven fifty nine fifty there's some there's some variances but let's say a thousand dollars solid per month in rent Okay, a two hundred thousand dollar property, you can get fourteen hundred a month for. You might get fourteen fifty. A three hundred thousand dollar property, you might get seventeen hundred. It, it, it starts. You get less per month in rent as the value is higher. So come circle around back to what you're saying. Let's pretend the people listening have a market that's similar to this area. In that it really doesn't make sense once you start getting past 100, 120 in value as a rental property, then circle back. And yes, that formula is perfect because the whole Burr formula is, is reliant on you buying a house. In this case, in this example, it was $50,000. You're rehabbing it. In the case we just said 20,000. Okay. You're then renting it and then refinancing it. And refinances are based on, generally speaking, um, you know, 70 or 80 percent they're going to give you of the value. So if this house was worth $100,000 and they give you 75 percent of the value, you get $25,000 back. So you bought it for 50, probably with some loan. You put 20 or 25 in with your own money. Now you refinanced it for 75 because it appraised at 100. You've got your 25 back. Now you can go and repeat that again, buy another $50,000 property with a loan, spend your 25 re renovating it, rent it out, refinance it, get your 25 back, and you're repeating this. So you, with your working capital, you're able to just each year get two, three, four, five, six properties, depending on how fast you can find the deals <laughs> um, in your working capital, probably, probably depending on your life situation, it wouldn't be, but a few a year, but so what, if you can do a few a year, 10 years from now, 
that's, you know, 30 houses. Um, So, so to be exact with the formulas, yes, if you're in a hundred thousand dollar market, that's perfect. Cause, cause buy, renovate, rent, rehab or, or refinance and repeat will not work if you're not buying it at the formula you just mentioned. Because let's pretend instead of 50,000, you bought it at 75. It's still worth only 100 after you renovate it. So then you put your 25 in it. Now it's worth 100 and you put 100 in, you go to refinance and they're going to give you 75% of the value, which is 75,000. You didn't get your working capital out. Mm, you see what that. I mean? So, so yeah. your formula for that $100,000 house as we just covered it is spot on. So what would you say to someone where you say like, cause, cause honestly, these kind of deals, like you said, you know, you're spending $15,000 a month on trying to get those deals and those deals just don't come across all the time. So it's very difficult to get those deals. What if someone says, okay, look, you know, with that formula on the buy side, let's say they said, okay. I can, it's a hundred thousand dollar house. You're telling me to buy it at fifth. You think after repaired value is a hundred thousand. And so you're saying, okay, if we do the math, it needs $20,000 worth of work. We need to buy it at 50,000. Let's say that same house, they say we can buy it at 70,000. That's the best price we can get. For someone who's just getting started, would you tell them, like they just want to get their feet wet. You know, they're like, look, I want to build up my rental portfolio. I'm never going to flip it. I'm just going to keep it and rent it. Um, Would you tell them to just walk away and just wait? Or would you tell them, okay, your, you know, your margins might be a little bit skinnier. Would you say someone who's just getting their feet wet, they could, their margins could be a little bit smaller than yours. So so here, here's, here's a super, it's a great question, okay? And here's my experience, and here's my best advice I can give. Don't start with a rental property. Start with something in a vision that five years or 10 years from now with rental property, you can commit to because the payoff is good enough in your mind. So for me, and I'm going to circle around why I'm telling you this, it started with this one question. And the answer is, it depends what your 5, 10, or 15-year vision is. Okay? For me, it was really simple. I was like, man, if I could have 10 paid-off rental properties 15 years from now, and this was back in 2001 or two, oh, my God, it would be so great. I mean, just to know I have 10000 a month coming in, and I'm not having to, like, you know, work so hard and be stressed week to week and month to month or sales good. Are they bad? Just, Mm. Oh my God, that was worth whatever I had to do to get there. Okay. But if I had just been like, Oh yeah, I hear rental property is a good idea. And I buy a rental property. Once that rental property started to create headaches and problems, I would only be seeing, Hey, I'm making 400 a month off this property, but this tenant just trashed it. I'm spending 3000. Well, there goes like almost 9 months of of quote cash flow, you know? And I'm having to make a mortgage payment. Oh god, now there's you know 1100 going. Like you wouldn't have perspective. You would just have pain. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
But if you had a vision, that's like, man, if I can just get this many and I can pay them off in this fashion over time and I can put away this money, now the pain's worth it. Okay. I like that. I like that because that does, that is true. And that, that's actually what I gave my mom. I feel like I gave my mom some bad advice a couple of years ago um, because she had a great duplex down at the oceanfront, but, and she ended up selling it because at that time my dad had passed away and it was like needing so much work. You know, you know how a property gets to the point where like you don't do anything for a while. And every month she was just so stressed. Yes. And so she was like, you know, okay, I've got to sell this thing because she was, you know, it was, oh, do you have ten, uh, paint? She had to paint. Then she had vacancy for a couple months. And then she had the HVAC went out and she was just pouring out. And money. then on top of it, think about it. She's also, you said your dad had passed away, right? Yeah. That's stressful to begin with. Yeah. So I had just told her, I said, why don't you just sell it and you can get something later on down the road. But I still don't think it was great advice to her at the time because it probably was still good advice for her because she, at the was, time, her, she at was, the was time. like, it was yeah, too was much for her to handle. It was just too much for her to do. Yes. yes. But, but, you know, honestly, I, I should have probably just bought it from her and said, let me buy it from you. So you don't have that stress and I'll sell it back to you like at a later time or something like that. Sure. Sure. So let's talk about rehab for a second. Cause that's the second R. And so there's two key questions that people want to ask and keep in mind when they're rehabbing a rental. Number yeah. one, what do I need to do to make this house livable and functional? And number two, which rehab decisions can I make that will add more value than their cost? Okay. So I want you to talk about and get right down to the nitty gritty. I'm, I'm going to get down to the nitty gritty. Okay. Because this is like so important. Okay. And I'm going to love saying this, even though it's inflammatory. <laughs> what you think doesn't matter. If you're not the customer in that market price, you're pricing, you know, you see this all the time. Even my own brother-in-law did it. He over-renovated his rentals because he's like, I want to make it really nice. So where he could have spent 15000 and literally got the same amount of rent, he spent like 30000 you know, I mean, like, oh, I want to put granite countertops on because that's how it would be if I if I had a rental, I'd like it. That's not thinking, going back to the goal. Okay, what are you really trying to do here? You know, if you're just trying to make really nice rental property because you just like babysitting people, then great, make it and make no money. But you want to figure out when it comes to a rehab, what you need to do. And the easiest way to do that is get online and look at the houses that are renting that in your price point near your house and don't over renovate it. So that's the number one thing is don't over renovate it for a rental okay. property. That's like asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> do not over renovate. Specific there. So like, for example, are you ever putting granite countertops or Brazilian hardwood floors or high-end stainless steel appliances in your properties? Absolutely never. Now that's the price point I'm in. If I was in a vacation town where I'm trying to get a certain amount, it, it could be different. But generally, vacation homes make no money. They're an emotional sell, and they offset the cost 
of having it generally. I'm not saying it can't be different, but yeah. In, in the regular rental market where people live around here, you know, I've identified that that $1,000 minimum monthly rent is the least I want to deal with. And that for that, you know, a house under a hundred thousand in value works and I can pick those up at 50. So I'm 50,000 all in running at a thousand a month. Mm. I think I've gotten off topic. Let me go back to the, we were talking about the renovation. So right. for those renovations, the key um, is functionality and appeal and appearance. Um, when you look at appearance, if you take the flooring and the walls, the painting, Paint and flooring is 90% of everything your eye can see. So those are your basics for making it look nice, you know, paint and flooring. Well, let's um, let's break it down even more. So like for you, obviously, you've got contractors that you're getting for a better price. This is going to be hard for people to match, but at least they could get somewhere near that. Yes. So for painting, what are you paying to paint okay. the properties? All right. So this is really important too. When you're doing this, let, let's call it burr. Okay. Um, the people you need to be hiring are people that have no office, work from their house. They might have a, 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 a side helper, maybe two at most. And that's it. And the reason for that is their overhead's very low. So when they're making let's just say what I pay for paint generally labor and you always break out. You want all your estimates broken out labor and materials. You never want it combined ever, ever, ever. Okay. Um, I'm paying a dollar a square foot for labor on painting. Now let me tell you what that means. Cause it's very easy to confuse that. If it's a thousand square foot house, I am paying a thousand dollars for labor. That is walls, trim and ceiling. So the amount of square footage being painted is four or five times that. Because if you this room right here, pretend it was 100 square feet, well, each wall is also 100 square feet almost, as well as the ceiling. Well, the walls aren't quite, but the ceiling is. So, so you do it by the square footage of the house, not the square footage of what's being painted. And a dollar a square foot for a guy who's used to painting, it's far more than he or she earns working for somebody. Okay, so you're really looking for that self-employed person. Um, and they're going to spray the house and then trim it and paint it. And then you buy material. And then what about the cost of the paint? Um, I think I just kind of guesstimated that at like, you know, if you have a 1500 cents. square. Well, I, I gave you 25 cents as a, as, a, as a shooting point, but a 1500 square foot house is going to cost about 300 dollars in paint materials, maybe, maybe 400. Um, you might be able to get it for 200, but somewhere in there, you get the cheaper paints and it takes more labor. But if you, if you figured a dollar, 25 cents for materials, a dollar for labor, you'd be fine. And then, and then really the key with hiring that labor is you never pay in advance because remember you're going to buy the materials. They're not out of pocket for materials. Okay. Um, and you pay as a job is completed, not in advance. And you don't even pay halfway through. If, if, if they're halfway done with a job and you give them half, they will leave if they have a better job, literally. Because they've done half the work, they got half the money, now they have a job they like better, they're just gonna leave. Wow. Um, 
so so anyhow, you you pay. Well, what if get, they say? What if they say to you, "Look, I I don't have the money for materials. You have to at least pay for materials." That's what I'm saying. You pay for materials. You tell pay me, for the materials, but you don't pay the Home Depot. And and literally the Home Depot will call you at the contractor desk and you pay over the phone with your credit card. Okay. Boom. You don't have to go with them or you can go with them depending on how much you want to control that. Yeah. So. Got it. Um, okay. So you'll, you'll pay for all the materials up front, but you just won't pay them even for half the job until the whole job is completely done. If they're 90% done with the job and they want half the money, fine. Because if they walk, I'll get someone else to finish it because it's 90% done. <laughs> but yeah. you want to be like, if they're halfway done and they need a draw, don't give them more than 20% of the work they've done. Because if they walk, you don't want to be at a deficit. Mm. Finish the job. And, and once you get a good contractor, you'll trust them. But in the beginning, trust nothing. <laughs> if they don't start off well, like, you know, if they're like, hey, I'll be there Monday and you stop by Tuesday and they haven't done anything, just cut the ties. I mean, it, it, if it does not start well, it never ends well. Yes. Okay, I just want to be like clear. And, and you're like, oh, my God, it's so much pain finding someone else. I'm just going to live with this devil. It's it's never good. It's just right. only gets worse from there. All right, let's talk about flooring then. What are you paying? Let's separate it out. What are you paying for labor and what are you paying for materials? Okay, currently I switched our flooring um, and that will continue to switch because this is a moving target because you've got that luxury vinyl plank stuff or they call it luxury, but it, it's, it's, it's the laminate that we used to buy or you still get. Um, that laminate, the problem with that is if it gets wet, it swells. And so it's it's a terrible choice for a rental property. I mean, mm -hmm. like rotten. Um, but the new stuff is vinyl, so it meaning it's rubber instead of that press board underneath the veneer surface that makes it look like wood. Um, so we've switched to that. We used to pay under a dollar a square foot for like um, typical laminate with press board, but we did that in our rehabs, not our rentals. Um, in the actual rentals, we're paying a dollar sixty-eight right now, and I bet that'll be a dollar in a year because those vinyl products are coming down with the popularity. Um, so we we it looks like wood flooring, it looks like laminate, but it's vinyl. The great thing about that is you can put it everywhere, meaning the bedrooms, the bathroom, the kitchen, and the nice thing about it is if you stick with one and maybe even save some, like put it in a garage or something. You can, if they tear some of the tile moving the fridge or not tile flooring, you can pop up the pieces and put down the necessary pieces. You don't have to replace the whole floor like you used to when it was vinyl, you know, like when it was in rolls of, of linoleum. Yeah. <laughs> you get a tear and then it's. Because now they're like, they're like vinyl planks. So you can just are. rip up that one plank and then move to the next. So, okay. So how much was that per square foot and how much That's is $1.68 right now is what we're paying for the one we use, but there's plenty of opportunity and we pay a dollar a square foot labor on the install. So $1.68 for the actual material and another dollar for the install. For the install. For, for for so a thousand square foot house would be a thousand dollars labor and eleven sixty-eight in materials plus taxes. Okay. So All right. Now what about the kitchen? 
Um, what are you looking at to replace that kitchen? Okay. Well, um, I just use appliances for a rental property are going to be about 1500. That's fridge, microwave, dishwasher. And are you getting white, black, stainless? Um, never stainless. Um, I like black because it's easy to cover. Um, if it's all dirty and scratched up, it's not the same as a white one that gets dirty and scratched up. So I like black. Now, why don't you ever get stainless? Because now, well, even the stainless lookalikes, they've kind of made it where they're not that much more for like the stainless lookalikes. Um, it's not a bad idea. I just end up going with, because my rental market is a certain type of house and a certain price point. Um, I just save money where we can save money on it. And if, if we found we weren't saving any money, we might do it. But again, stainless can get ugly where black is black. It's even easy to cover up if it gets ugly. Gotcha. And now a word from our sponsor, Canzel Realty. Run your business your way, only at Canzel Realty. You can have all the freedom with none of the standard real estate red tape. If you're an agent, you get to run the show however you want and be your own boss. If you want to launch a team, you don't have to jump through all the hurdles and holdups. From day one, you'll have tons of tools and perks to offer your team. Powerful real estate tech like KV Core, Brokerman, and Skyslope. If you want to be your own brokerage or already have your own brokerage, that's not a problem either. You'll still get to run it however you want. All Canzel requires is a small Powered by Canzel logo next to yours. You can be the broker, you can be the manager, and you get to determine splits. You get all the tech, admin support, ownership stock, and revenue share, but most importantly, all the freedom, all the time, only at Canzel Realty. Okay, so we've talked about that. So total in the kitchen, how much are you spending? Okay, so let's say appliances, 15 to 1700, okay? Now, kitchen size is a big deal, okay? Um, and that's, again, it gets back to that price point, the size we're looking for. But I'm going to generally say, hey, it's 2500 for countertop, cabinets, and install on a small kitchen. Um, and I don't have that broken down beyond that because I just kind of look at it a little more macro because we've done a lot of them and kind of have a moving machine. So I can't really break down the cabinets per, but you could just go to Home Depot or Lowe's to get a basic breakdown of that in the countertops. That's what we're using Home Depot or Lowe's countertops. Um, the labor's the big deal is uh, I know I used to say 25 a cabinet for labor, but we're probably more like 35 now, you know, I mean, it's been a long time. Um, so if you, you know, right behind your head right now, you've got basically two cabinets plus a middle cabinet. So, that would be 35, 35 and the middle would be less than 35. Um, and underneath you, if there's cabinets, you, you can count the cabinets because they're relatively easy to install as long as a carpenter has got knowledge. Oh, I know, I know what I was going to ask you about the flooring real quick is that a lot, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, it's not as cozy to have the, you know, the wood vinyl, in the bedrooms, like they'll put vinyl everywhere, but in the bedrooms, they'll put the carpet because they feel like it's more cozy. What is your philosophy? Are you like, look, I don't care if it's cozy or not. You know, I don't want to be steam cleaning these carpets and so forth. Right. Well, um, so you you just 
nailed it. I mean, we want something that can last a decade if possible, where carpet is a, you know, one to five year lifespan. Um, so let's, let's pretend we were having trouble renting a place and let's pretend the feedback was, hey, we want a warmer feeling bedroom, these floors. We might simply say, well, then listen, um, and, and this is assuming they're a good tenant, which, by the way, is a whole other thing we need to talk about. So let's circle back on that. Okay, we'll that, 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 that will make your rental experience miserable. Yes. Good. Okay. So that's okay, like so huge. We'll, we I'll, that's next. Not that's miss that. Next. Okay. So let's just pretend we're like, yeah, we really want these people. We've done the work of the right people. Well, great. Just we'll say, hey, look, we have an allowance of two hundred dollars a room. Let's go to Hungry Power Lowe's. Pick out the throw rug. For each room, okay? So you've got three bedrooms, three throw rugs, 600 bucks. Assuming again, they're your dream tenant you want, okay? Um, so what, now you spent money instead of having the house go another month unrented. Um, that's okay, but I've never had that. That's why I said, let's pretend, let's pretend, let's pretend. Generally, you know, it looks pretty nice because all the floors are the same. And if they want something, you can always say, oh, you can go buy an inexpensive throw rug. It'll keep it nice cozy or anything you like. So let's talk about the last three items, bathrooms, HVAC, and roof. What are you spending on bathrooms, HVAC, and roof? Okay. So bathrooms, let's just go through that in kind of a little piece by piece. Walk into Home Depot or Lowe's and look at what you can get the vanity, the top, the faucet, and the mirror or cabinet for, because they're always having these packages. You know, I mean, like always. Um, and they're incredible buys, um, typically speaking. Um, your size may be awkward and not fit what they have. So then you're, you're, you're going to kind of need to figure out what to do there. But um, so you've got your cabinetry. Let's just call that you get a good deal at Home Depot or Lowe's and it's $300 all in. The faucet, the top, the cabinet, just materials. Toilets usually a hundred, so you're at four hundred. Okay, um, installing them. Let's just pretend it was a hundred each. You know, six hundred. It every bathroom is different because it depends. Like, are you going to put in new lighting? Are you going to have to? Um, when I say glaze, there's these kits at Home Depot and Lowe's where if they're done properly, because part of the process is kind of stripping the showers you can then paint tile or you can paint the fiberglass around and it'll last a long time and look brand new. So um, I generally will just go in a bathroom and if it looks trash, say, hey, that's 2000 bucks, but we're not gonna put in a new bathtub. We're gonna make the existing watertight and, and pretty. Um, and if you're gonna replace it, you know, labor's the big deal. There are plumbing and labor. Um, the bathtub itself isn't, it's up hundred bucks or 150 or 200. Okay. It's, it's not much. Yeah. And then what about with the roof and the HVAC? What are you planning? Okay. HVAC, I'm paying 4,000 for a standard total replacement and up to 5,000. If we're going to have to rerun all the duct work, it's a little bit less or a little bit more depending on the situations, but for a rental property, what I love especially if you're getting it, like, say, if you got a little duplex in like Norfolk. Okay. And I have this situation. I bought two duplexes side by side. They currently have central air conditioning and heating. Okay. 
when one of those units goes out and it has to be replaced, we're going to rip it out. We're going to cut an actual wall square and have an air conditioning system <laughs> that goes in that square in the wall rectangle with what's called a sleeve on the outside, because that's like $600 and will perfectly cool a 750 square foot, two bedroom, one bath house. And there's no HVAC costs. Then you just put this the heating strips at the baseboards in each room with a dial. And now your HVAC is inexpensive. So um, I'm not sure that that's a particular market, by the way, as your rents get more expensive, you can't do that. But in these duplexes in Norfolk, you can do that. And instead of having $4,000 replacements, you know, once, once that's been done, once it's, it's inexpensive forever for HVAC, which is a huge landlord savings. And if you're renting at 750 a month in a duplex on each side, it, it, having a $4,000 expenditure every 10 years is very real. And, and it will not change the filters. Okay. Just right. forget it. Forget it. And just, unless you're going to hire someone to go do that. And then you start weighing out the pros and cons of, Hey, I'm spending all this money to keep them up versus spending none and replace them every 10 years. <laughs> you you got to weigh out. And then what about the roof? Okay. Um, I don't have good pricing on roofs because I haven't looked at it lately. I've got really good roof pricing, but I, I don't have it off the top of my head a square. I want to say we were around a hundred and around a hundred and ten or fifteen a square materials, but that's easy to verify at Home Depot or Lowe's. And I know our labor was not more than our materials. Awesome. So a square is ten by ten, by the way. And okay. that's how siding and roofing is done. That's how it's priced. So if you're going to talk to a, a guy doing siding and you're going to ask him, what are you charging per square labor? And he's like, I'm not going to tell you that. Well, you already know he's trying to quote high. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, because he wants to throw it in one price so you don't know what you're paying. That's funny. All right. So let's move on to the next R, which is rent. And it is absolutely critical, like you said, to screen diligently so you get tenants that are actually going to pay each month. So I want you to give some tips that really kind of give them practical ways that you go, these are some of the things we do when we decide whether we're going to rent to someone. And obviously, step number one, you're going to follow all the laws. But after that, what's next? Okay. So, um, <laughs> If I was in Oakland, California, so if you're in Oakland listening to this, don't don't even bother doing the rental business in Oakland. Oakland now has just passed a law. The left coast, the commie coast, is now passed a law. Well, in Oakland, just to give you an example, where you cannot run criminal background checks. Wow. Yeah, as a landlord. So you can have an apartment building. And you can't, you, you can put a violent murderer right next to a, a mother with three young children, violent rapist murderer. You're not allowed to look at his criminal history, ask about it or run it. Wow. What about the credit? Can you still check, check their credit? I don't have the ins and outs of the left coast and how it's just imploding in socialism, but it is literally, uh, if we do not change that, it is just going to be like San Francisco, just a a crater of just human failure, but I'm sorry, I'm going off on a different tangent. 
Focus. Okay. Okay. So come what back are, and focus. Yeah. What okay. are the steps um, if we were so, not in so California? Key, regular steps. Yeah. Your key is so simple. As a landlord, what do you care about? That they're going to pay and that they're going to keep the place nice. That's all you care about. I mean, that's it. Um, so the question really becomes how can you determine if they're going to pay and if they're going to keep the house nice? And I guess since we talked about the criminal thing, that they're not going to kill you or neighbors or anyone in the house <laughs> or cause other criminal events. Um, but the two are really easy to do. Katie in my office handles all that now. And I'm so far removed from it that the actual tactical implementation, like what service we use, I don't remember, but the process is really easy. There's a host of online services that you can check and find which ones do good background checks. Okay. But what you're really looking for is you want to verify their income, how much they make, and then you want to verify their monthly minimum payments through whatever these online services pull to verify. So if you're renting to a tenant that looks like they make $4,000 a month, but their minimum payments after their car and all this other stuff eats up $3,500, you're talking to a tenant that's going to not be able to pay the rent. You know, they're going to have a lot of life circumstances. The car breaks. What do they do? Get the car fixed or pay the rent, you know? Yeah. So, um, so, so your typical background checking to make sure that they have the income and that their obligations don't exceed their income is key. Um, I think the general rule is like three times rent. Their income should be in a gross banner, a minimum of three times rent. So if you're renting a $1,000 place, their gross income needs to be 3000 a month. But that's just a minimum type of criteria. You really need those reports to kind of see, are they going to be able to pay? And they're pretty good reports. They go back to eviction histories and things like this. And where are you advertising to get these people? Are you going to apartments.com, rentals.com, Craigslist? Are you just putting a sign in the yard? Is it, um, you know, getting referrals from family and friends? What, you know, you could even put flyers in your grocery store if you wanted to, but what's kind of your go-to? Like you've got a property, it's time to rent it. Where are you advertising at? That is such a good question. Um, and Katie does, Katie in my office is, is my property manager and my transactional manager for all of our flips. And um, I'm, see, I'm far enough removed because I've been doing this a long time. I'm not exactly sure where she is advertising. I can tell you some of the things we've done that I remember. Okay. One of the things we like doing is because my wife has her license is just throwing it on MLS because the moment you put a on MLS, it populates within a day to Trulia and like what are all the other sites, you know what I mean? It auto populates all those sites. So if you put it for rent in MLS, it goes to everywhere else. Um, and so, I mean, nowadays online is key. Everyone looks online. Okay. Um, I know we use a site called Ghost Section 8 when we want to rent on Section 8. Section eight is a pretty easy scenario because you know the money, you can understand the money side of it um, and how you're going to get paid. Because go back to, you know, step number one, am I going to get the rent? Step number two, are they going to keep the place nicely? One of the things I like to do with section eight is simply mail them the app, but then 
literally go to their house directly where they're currently renting from and just say, hey, I'm on the way to check another property. Here's the application. Do you mind if I use the restroom while I'm here? Because I, I just, you know, whatever. And if you can get from their front door through their house to their restroom and back out, you now know how they live, <laughs> which is is key. I mean, you want to know, are they trashing the place or keeping the place? That's all. Um, do they have 75 people in there? You know, that's another thing on Section 8 you have to be careful about is them sub-renting. And if you have too many people in the house, your wear and tear is going to go through the roof. But I, I do like Section 8. I'll tell you that right now. Well, out of your, you've got 57 properties. What percentage of those properties are Section 8 that you have? Um, Not a lot. I we'll probably have seven or eight. Seven or eight. Yeah. Okay. And you know, one thing you said to me, I remember uh, you told me about a property and you're like, Chantel, you know, I think you said like, hey, I don't, I, I'm not going to take this property. I've got too many in the pipeline right now. Do you want it? And I think my response to you was something like, I don't really love that area. I feel like it's a really high crime rate. And you said something to me along the lines of, Chantel, you don't have to live there. Like, you just have to rent it out. And he, and something like, if the numbers work, look at the numbers. Like, it doesn't matter. Do the numbers work? Um, well, do you I, remember it, me having that conversation with you? I, I, I remember probably more than one like that Yeah, <laughs> because at the end of the day, it's the same thing I did when I first started buying rental property is I looked at it and I'm like, well, okay, I understand you can't make money renting a $400,000 house, at least here. Okay. There, there are ways to do that, but let's keep it in the normal rental perspective. Um, so I rented these houses that I could see, okay, it's okay if I live there, you know, and, and, and they were expensive for what I got in rent. So circling back around, yes, um, I look at the rental property strictly from the numbers. One of the things that's important to remember is that that neighborhood is a good neighborhood for somebody coming from another neighborhood. That's all I mean. Like I, I used, I remember Lake Edward when I first started flipping houses, I had never really been exposed to a neighborhood like that. And I was like, kind of scared to be there. Um, now I'm like, Lake Edward, that's a good neighborhood <laughs> because I've, I've been to so many neighborhoods and I've seen um, the spectrum of what you call, you know, rough neighborhoods, um, board ups. So, so like a, a neighborhood where half the houses are boarded up, I'm not even going to buy in at all. That's a rough neighborhood. People coming from there, going to live in a neighborhood that you're like, this is rough. I don't like it. They're like, this is a great neighborhood. So it's, every every neighborhood is going to have people that are like, this is a good neighborhood. I like it. Um, depends on where they're coming from. I answered that kind of long, but yeah, no, I'm all fine. about the numbers. It goes back to 50000 all in, $1,000 a month rent. That's what I'm shooting for. Okay, so let's talk about that because one of the things that I teach people is the 1% rule. And, you know, I think that, I think the 1% rule personally um, is great for just the average person. Like I know you kind of follow the 2% rule because you're just a beast. Yeah, you're a beast and you can, but I personally think- 
Yeah. Like even for me, I follow the 1% rule, which means that if I'm going to buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars, I want to get a thousand dollars a month for it. $200,000 property. I want to get $2,000 a month in rent. So explain the 2% rule a little bit more in detail of what, how you do it. All right. Let me go back to, um, well, this will explain it anyhow. When you buy an investment, okay, there, and I'm talking generic. Like if you read a lot of books on investing and money and finance and getting wealthy over time, which I, I read so many when I was young because I wanted to be wealthy and financially independent, all that stuff, um, which I can't underscore the value of just learning. <laughs> if you want to become financially independent, learn, even if it's just an hour a day or a half hour a day, but you do that every day, two years later, you I mean, golly, it's, it's amazing. But go back to your question. Two ways to look at an investment, cash flow, meaning, and let me, cash flow is such an overused word. How much money you're getting after all expenses per year? And then the other way is growth. So like in the stock market, cash flow would be called a dividend. You're buying like, if you buy a utility company, like the electric company that provides electricity and the stock's $100 and gives you 4% dividend a year, that meant if you had 100,000 in there, you would get $4,000 a year in dividends. It's not gonna grow much. It might grow from 100 to 105, but it's a static type of environment. It's not like the electric company is gonna do some new invention and now 10 times the houses have electricity. It's just very stable and it's a dividend. When you buy my $50,000 house, it's very stable. It's not going to go up in value a lot. So it's got very little growth potential in my opinion. Okay. Um, There are some exceptions to that, but I'm not going to complicate it, explaining irrational lending and the booms that happen due to it. But I buy for cash flow, meaning I put 50,000 in, I'm getting $1,000 a month out. Whether I have a note on that, meaning I financed it or I don't, I'm making money on an annual basis, period. Over on your point, the 1%, like those first houses I bought when I first got started, they were even a little bit less than 1%, meaning like I bought a $135,000 house to begin with, and I put, oh, I put 20% down. Um, and I think I got 1165 a month in rent. Um, and that was very much the first four or five houses I bought, $125,000 houses. And this is in the beginning of 2000. Um, today, they're worth 250. So they've grown in um, growth. They've growth. You know, that's what I mean by growth or value. Well, I want to say something real quick, because I think the one thing that people forget that I've seen that people, they remember the 1% rule. They're like $100,000 times 1%. That means if I buy it for $100,000, I need to rent it for $1,000. The piece they forget is that the calculation multiplies the purchase price of the property plus any necessary repairs by 1%. So that means if you're paying a hundred thousand and you put a hundred and put 25,000 in repairs. Now you need to be able to get 1250. And that's the piece I see people 
missing as well because they'll just be like, okay, yeah, I've got a good deal, but they forget to add the repairs. Yes. And and so so if you buy at that number you're saying at you just want to be buying with the idea that appreciation is really going to be your payoff. Because I think we were just covering, you're like, Hey, I bought this house. It doesn't need much. I got a really, and you did get a really awesome buy on it. Um, uh, here's what I want to say. Add about $300 a month for repairs on a single family detached house. Say it's 1500 square feet or smaller. Add 150 to 200 if you have a townhouse. Okay, just just factor that in, knowing per month. Hey, my mortgage payment is 800. My rent's 1100. I'm not really making 300 bucks. It looks like I'm making 300 bucks, but I need to bank that because when this tenant moves out, it could be two years from now. Maybe they trash the carpet great. I get their security deposit of 1200 bucks, you know, and and I got to paint the place and the HVAC broke. And all of a sudden you're putting out $4,000 to get the place rent ready again and missing a month or two months of payments. I mean, you have to make the mortgage payment. So, so single family houses, um, if, if you're not accounting for that reality that they're going to pop up every once in a while and have four thousand dollars hey i need it you know you're going to end up in in some financial pain and eventually become a customer of a house buying company that sells you know takes away the pain yeah i mean ultimately to buy a house inexpensively there has to be pain you know there has to be motivation and that motivation could just be the person could be very wealthy and look at the house and go i don't want to mess with it i mean I, I don't want to mess with that. That is such a mess. I, I don't need to. I don't want to. Or it could be the opposite. They're financially stressed because, you know, they can't make both payments. And that All right. So let's of- go to the final. We have buy, rehab, rent. Now we're at refinance. So not too long ago, it was actually kind of hard to find a bank that was willing to refinance a single family rental property, but now it's gotten a lot easier. So any tips on the refinancing when you're talking about a rental property and any tips for people on that? Okay. So um, directly, I don't have those tips because the route I did is such a different type of route. But you're like, because I pay everything off in cash. So, you know, I don't really need to do the refinance step. Well, I mean, you're looking at 20. um, I started investing a third of what I earned in 1992. I love that. See, that's the kind of nugget. That's such a good nugget because that's like where you say, okay, I've got this much money coming in. And my advice obviously would be take that first 10%, give that back to the Lord um, and then take the rest of it. But I love that. Just that's a system that people could put in place and literally say, okay, I'm going to take that third and put it over here and I'm going to try to reinvest it. And, And the easiest way to start on a plan like that is when you're 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 reengaging in your career and your skill set so that you could earn more because when you earn more taking income see it's hard let's just pretend you you make 50,000 a year and you've been spending like the average american 51,000 
<laughs> you're actually spending more than the average, you know what I mean? Quite literally. Then the idea of like even taking 10%, you're like, what? But right. now you're like, hey, I'm, I'm doing these things. I'm optimistic that I'm improving my skill sets. I'm improving myself. I'm improving my character, my work ethic. I'm going to get a promotion and make 70,000. Now it's very easy to say of that 70, I'm going to take half of the increase and enjoy it. But mm -hmm. the other half I'm going to invest. Mm -hmm. And then when you go to 90, do the same thing. Take, take a percentage to quote, enjoy the, the growth, but take a bigger percentage to invest for your future. That's the key. I mean, people just want to think one day they're going to boom. But I, in fact, I will, for our staff meeting, I like doing quotes. And I have a couple quotes to that that I just uh, texted myself. Here, <laughs> you'll like this. Um, this one's a little negative, but nobody ever wrote down a plan to be broke, fat, lazy, or stupid. These things happen are what happen when you don't have a plan. Um, so anyhow, you start making a plan yeah. to increase your income. You start making a plan to when, as my income increases, this is the percentage I'm going to invest. You start making plans like that. And, and, and to this point, there's no royal road or anything. One thing at a time, all things in succession. That which grows fast withers as rapidly. That which grows slowly endures. And, and so like you're coming back to like, how do I make money in real estate? Dude, why are you talking to me about learning more to earn more and working on my character and, and all these other things? Well, because they all tie in. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 you're not going to get lucky and just make a million bucks. And if you do, for certain, you're going to mistake your luck for skill and lose that million. Mm, I love uh, that. Well, the last R is repeat. And I think that's kind of, you, you know, you don't really need to say a lot about that. You've clearly done the repeat 57 times. So yep. what's your goal? Like how many more are you trying to shoot for a hundred or what's your goal on how many properties you have? Doing all that. Um, okay. So like I said, the, my first goal was to get 10 paid off so I could have like $10,000 a month and be like, okay. it's Okay. And then that became 20 and then that became 30 and then that became 40 and now it's 50. And now, so I realized in that process that, and here, here's a couple financial builders. I, I just philosophically identified very early on in life that there was no such thing as um, I hate to say enough, but there isn't like financial independence to one person might mean $2,000 a month and financial independence to another person might literally mean $1 million a month. Okay. So circling around, um, I kind of identified level one in independence, financial independence, level two, then level three. Level one is, Hey, my basic stuff is covered for, for me, that was $10,000 a month. Meaning like, my basic necessities that I call necessities are covered. Level two is my current lifestyle is covered because my current lifestyle is far bigger than necessities. Um, <laughs> I won't go over all this stuff, but you get the idea. Um, then level three is just that unlimited. 
and and there's no limit. And to do that. you feel like you've reached that now? Which level two or three? Three. Level, oh God, no, no. Level three, <laughs> level three is is oh God. I mean, like if I'm like, hey, you know, I don't mind that I'm spending three million dollars a year for a private jet to sit there whenever I want it. That would be like level three, and I don't mind. So what's that. your next goal? So you've already got fifty thousand. Well, you've see, already here's the funny thing. So, so, so the, the short answer to that is, my goal is in perpetuity to grow the rental business. Well, meaning because I've already seen there isn't like a number that I'm like, okay, that's good. It's like, hey, I enjoy working with some of the people I work with. Um, I enjoy if if my kids later on in life want to get involved with real estate, having a portfolio where they might be able to be involved. Um, so it's just an imperpetuity type of thing that I want to continue to grow. And then knowing that at any point, if I really, for unforeseen reasons, just say like, I'm done. Okay. I'll just be done at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if we're sitting here talking five years from now, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if I had, 200,000 a month in rental property. And I wouldn't be surprised if I had a hundred and I wouldn't even be surprised if I had 75 because I've just kind of come to a place where I'm growing that, but I'm not wrapped around it. Got it. And, and that is by the way, the value of, of getting to some level yeah, of financial. To that point. Yeah. Well, you yeah. always, every time I meet with you, I'm always like, okay, I'm ready to buy another rental. Like I, <laughs> if I have lunch with you or talk with you, I'm like, all right, where, where's my next rental coming from? Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Tell listeners where they can find you and where they can follow you. Oh God, I'm not a guru, dude. I mean, I don't have any following. What about, what, about, any... what about Facebook? Where can they find you on Facebook? Oh God. We'll put uh, the link below. How about that? We'll put your Facebook link. I, I'm just, I'm not a social media guy. You know what? I really, I'm just not social media. I'm not a guru. I'm not selling stuff. I, I just was, when you asked, Hey, will you come on and talk about this stuff? I'm passionate about it, especially like helping people understand hey, they need to develop themselves. And mm-hmm. if they do that, here's how to set the goals and here's how to just move forward in life. And, and that's what it's all about is kind of that forward progression and realization of, of whatever your potential is. It doesn't have to be real estate and money. Um, and that's that's why I was like, yeah, sure, I'll talk about it. Maybe it'll help somebody. <laughs> You're awesome. But yeah. Well, you guys stay tuned. This has been amazing. Thank you again, Matt. And you guys stay tuned because we have another episode coming up in just a few. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a rating and a review so we can get this out to more agents. And tune in next week for another power-packed episode. This is the Millionaire Real Estate Podcast.